Welcome to Practical Christian Living. When a farmer plants his seed, he doesn't go out the next day and go, where's my crop? He doesn't go out in a month and say, where's my crop? He waits for the early rains, and then he waits for all that time to pass, and he waits for the later rain until it is the time of harvest. So you and I are to wait that way. In other words, we're not supposed to go, why isn't everything perfect in my life today? I just gave my life to Jesus. Why isn't it perfect now? Some have grown tired waiting for the Lord to return. In their impatience, they have lost faith. Is that you today? God's Word tells us we must wait and unfortunately suffer during that time and be patient for Jesus to return for His church. For this reason, the New Testament is full of encouragement in the waiting and encouragement in the suffering for us to help us endure and persevere and keep our eyes on the skies with hearts that are ready. Please stay with us for an important teaching out of James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Here's Robert Furrow. Father, we want to thank you. Lord, we really are blessed to be able to gather together here and study your word. We pray that you would be our teacher today. And as we, we come to the end of the book of James, and he covers such serious things here in the end, he reminds us of what's important, that we would live the way that we are supposed to live. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us this encouragement. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Jesus told us in Matthew 24 that those who endure till the end will be saved. There is a need for endurance in our lives. Endurance would be easy if there were never any struggles and never any difficulties. Let me put it this way. If there were no difficulties, if there were no hardships, there would be no need for endurance. You don't need to endure if you're just cooking along. If the sails are full and the wind's pushing you through life, there's no reason to endure. The idea of enduring is that there is some suffering, there is some difficulties, there are some hardships that you are facing. And everybody has their share of hardships. Job said, and Job had his share of hardships, more than his share actually, right? Job lost his children, Job lost all of his wealth, and Job lost his health. So his body was covered in boils, and he was finally sitting in the dust of the earth with pieces of pottery that he was scratching at the boils to try to relieve some of his discomfort. His wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Look at you. You're such a mess. Just curse God and die. And he refused to do it. But Job said, as the sparks fly upward, so man is born for trouble. Now, I don't know how much of a pessimist Job was, but that's a pretty pessimistic statement. Solomon said, the more days you have, the more sorrow you have. The longer you live, the more sorrow you have. If that's true, then some of us would say, well, then just take me now, Lord. Just come back for us now. Even better, right? Just let us be changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. But sometimes our desire for him to return is not as much a, a strong love that we have for him as it is a desire to escape the difficulties and hardships that we're facing. And that, in a way, is not endurance, is it? It's not patience. And so here in James, he's speaking to a... Suffering within the church is different during different times. Certain churches suffered in far greater ways than other churches in history. For the first 300 years, there was great persecution, first of all, from Judaism. 
And then from Roman emperors. There were 10 Roman emperors that persecuted the church. And in the first 300 years of the church's existence, there were 6 million Christians that were killed. It was under that kind of persecution that the church was, was born and that it grew. From day one, there was persecution immediately. And that persecution caused the church to spread so that you knew when you joined the church that you were not joining some kind of self-help movement. You knew this wasn't something for, for motivational speakers to say, hey, you want a better life? You want to learn to live better? You want to be more happy? You want to be more fulfilled? You want to be more successful? Then become a Christian. It was, we have a call. We have a cause. We have a burden. There's a battle that's taking place, and we are like soldiers that are called into the middle of the battle. We are to be light in the middle of a dark and desperate world. We're to be like athletes that give everything that we've got just to win the prize. Those in the world, they suffer that way in order to win a perishable prize. But we suffer that way that we can gain that which is eternal, that which really matters. And so Jesus said, count the cost. Make sure you understand that you are saying, I am willing to lay everything down for you if necessary. There are other times in church history where there doesn't seem to be any persecution, but certainly in individuals' lives, there is a balance of the power of God being demonstrated and the suffering of God, which we go through. Paul said that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. Paul said, I complete the suffering of Christ in my body. When you and I suffer, and we are patient, and we endure, and we stay with the Lord, we are completing the suffering of Jesus. How that works, I really don't know. That's one aspect of the scriptures that I've always had a little struggle with. Not that I don't believe it, not that I know, I know it's true, but how does it mechanically work? How does my suffering complete the suffering of Christ? But I feel greatly privileged that my suffering can do that, that God can take my suffering and he can use it to complete the sufferings of Jesus so that our sufferings are alongside of his sufferings. And again, I'll tell you, I know I've already made this point, but I want to make it again. Without suffering, being patient doesn't mean anything. The fact that we need to be patient and endure means that there are some hardships that we have to face for the cause and for the call. For them particularly, there was a lot of difficulties that they were facing. There was the persecution of Judaism started by Paul. They were following them around the world. There were the Judaizers that were challenging Christians everywhere that they went. They were being excommunicated from the synagogues. They were being excommunicated from the temple that was in Jerusalem. And so John says to them in verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how a farmer waits for his precious fruit on the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. How long are we supposed to be patient? Until Jesus comes back for us. It's not be patient because, you know, in five weeks, things are going to clear up or be patient in 10 years. Or be, it says be patient until the coming of the Lord. And this word for patience is the idea of being long tempered as opposed to short tempered. It's the idea of suffering long for him. The word itself has the idea uh, not of intensity, but of length, that you are going to suffer a long time and be patient until the coming of Jesus. Now, the introduction of James 
Two, waiting patiently until the coming of the Lord. Would it surprise you to find out that one in every 13 verses in the New Testament speak of the second coming of Jesus? It is a constant point of encouragement towards us to wait for the coming of the Lord. There's less tolerance in the church today for preaching on the second coming of Jesus. And I think it's because, again, we've become a church that is highly narcissistic. It's about us. It's about our comfort level. It's about what we receive. It's about what we gain from it, not about what we give and how we live. And so if Jesus comes back earlier, then he just cuts off what I'm going to get. If it's the self-help Christianity, if it's a narcissistic Christianity, then when Jesus returns, bummer, I was going to have all these things that Jesus was going to give me now, and now he came back. But if we understand that he's coming back and he's going to relieve us of our suffering, then we wait patiently until the coming of the Lord. And then he gives an example. How are we supposed to wait? He gives an example of a farmer. The farmer waits for his precious fruit on the earth. What you and I are waiting for is precious. We're going to see that as we continue on here, waiting patiently until it receives the early and the later rain. Israel is much like Tucson. Tucson, the, the climates are similar. Tucson has early rain and late rain. The early rain would be the winter rain. The monsoon rain would be the latter rain. For the desert, specifically for wildlife in the desert, it's not the later rain that really matters. It's the winter rain that matters. The reason I know this is because I used to hunt quail. I had a dog. He was kind of a bizarre dog. He was a yellow lab, and he, he was a hunting dog, and uh, he's hyper. But when it was a, a good winter, you had a lot of rain, you knew there's going to be a lot of quail to shoot and kill and eat. When it wasn't a good winter, you knew the coveys were going to be small. And I just kind of learned from that, that those winter rains are soaking rains. They're rains that really water the desert and store things up and really help things. In the summertime, those monsoons, they're quick rainstorms. They dump a lot of water. It runs off quickly and doesn't do anywhere near as much good as the winter rains do. But there's necessary, the, the late and the early rain. So when a farmer plants his seed, he doesn't go out the next day and go, where's my crop? He doesn't go out in a month and say, where's my crop? He waits for the early rains, and then he waits for all that time to pass, and he waits for the later rain until it is the time of harvest. So you and I are to wait that way. In other words, we're not supposed to go, why isn't everything perfect in my life today? I just gave my life to Jesus. Why isn't it perfect now? You're supposed to wait like a farmer who waits for his precious fruit. And we will receive our precious fruit when Jesus returns in eternity. Now, I'm not saying we won't receive part of it here. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. Jesus says, no one that has given up anything, father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife for me, will receive 10 times more here and in the life to come. So we know that God works in our lives now. And he's working all things out together for our good, right? To those who love him, to those who are called according to our purpose. But ultimately, we receive what we will receive in eternity, in heaven. Some of us will suffer more than others. We spoke here recently of the two brothers, James and John. James is the older brother. John is the younger brother. They're both part of the inner circle of Jesus. Jesus poured into both of them the same. James sacrificed his life almost immediately after the death of Jesus, and John suffered in life. Remember, John was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. 
Why is it that we don't picture that as suffering? When we think of John on the island of Patmos, somehow we think he's on Hawaii or something, you know? And it must have been good for him. He is imprisoned. He is banished. They had a banishment policy in their day. He was banished to the island of Patmos. It had become a prison for him. And it was there that God used him to write the book of Revelation when he had been banished to that island there on Patmos. It was suffering. Which one suffered greater? Was it James in giving his life or was it John in being patient? Either way, they were to patiently endure what God had for them. So he says, we are to be like that farmer. We're waiting for that precious fruit. Now we add something to it. He says, you also be patient. Same word, same encouragement. Therefore, be patient. Now you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What he adds in verse eight is to establish your heart. Establishing your heart is getting the roots of your heart to grow down deep so that when storms come, you can't be moved. Some of us here might not have established hearts. Some of us here might not endure in the midst of temptation and in the midst of trials. Some of us here, because our roots don't go very deep down in the Lord, when things get tough, when life takes turns, we don't expect it. We say, I'm done. I'm out. God didn't love me enough to keep this out of my life. Then I'm not going to follow him. And you don't have an established heart. Our goal now is to establish our heart because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now we think about James writing that. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And we go, that was 2,000 years ago. And he said, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Here we are 2,000 years later and he hasn't come back. And now you're preaching the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we need to establish our hearts. We want to make sure when he comes back that we're not caught doing something we shouldn't do. We want to make sure that we have an established heart. But if he didn't come 2,000 years ago, what makes you think he's going to come today? Because he hasn't come for 2,000 years. That means he's got to be closer to coming now than he was then. But also remember that the church age began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. And remember, the room that they were in was shaken and they all began to speak in tongues and people heard them in their own languages, magnifying God and glorifying God. And some people said, these guys are drunk. And Peter stood up and said, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. He said, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel that in the last days, we talk about the last days according to prophecy, God gave some markers for the last days. He said that seal up the things of this book until the time of the end when knowledge will increase and when men will move to and fro upon the earth. So from that, in Daniel chapter 12, we learn that when men go back and forth and when knowledge increases, that's the time when the unsealing of the book takes place and that's the time of the end. We know that the Bible says in Ezekiel 38 that in the last days, God will gather the nation of Israel back into the land again. So those are the last days. But also, Peter said, he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh in the last days. That is the whole church period. From the time that the church was born at the day of Pentecost and the spirit filled the people that were there until the time that Jesus comes back for his spirit filled church, they have been in anticipation of the return of the Lord. There has been the thought that Jesus could come at any moment. Why? Because he said, you don't know when I'm coming back. So be ready. Make sure your life is ready. So from the time that this was written until the time that we are preaching this now, and who knows, maybe another thousand years if the, if the Lord tarries. I don't think he will, but maybe he will. Then we are in anticipation of his return. That's what we are waiting for. And we want our hearts to be established so that we endure patiently, establishing our hearts because he could come at any moment. 
The last thing that we want is an unestablished heart when he returns. We don't want shallowness in our lives. We don't want to be living for ourselves or living for our flesh. We overcome the flesh by walking in the spirit, step by step in the spirit. The Bible says, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so we are patient waiting because the coming of the Lord is at hand. It says verse nine, do not grumble against one another. Now I take it while they're waiting, they're not being so patient. Not only are they not being so patient, but they're also groaning, murmuring, complaining about one another. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is the third time in these three verses that he's told us Jesus is coming, that he spoke of the coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming, his coming is near, and now the judge is standing at the door. Don't mistreat people. Don't grumble against one another. Don't slander malicious malice against one another because the judge is standing at the door. And the last thing that we want is when that judge comes through to say, Robert, I need to talk to you. We got some things we need to talk about. We want the judge to receive us with great joy. We want to make sure that we're right. One of the things that they were doing was grumbling against one another. He says a lot. James has a lot to say about our words. In fact, more than any other book. James is one of the heaviest books in the Bible. First Peter, which we'll cover here pretty soon, is also a heavy book. It rivals James in the heaviness of the topics and the way that he deals with it. But James deals with our words because what we say condemns us, James said. When we talk about somebody and we do the same thing, when we judge somebody with our words and we do the exact same thing that they're doing, God says, you're judging yourself. What a strong picture. Not to grumble against one another, brethren, because lest you be condemned, behold, the judge is standing at the door. I want to make sure my heart is established, that I have things right between, I'm treating people properly. He says, my brethren, take the prophets. Now, he's still talking about, even though he's throwing in these concepts of our words, he's still talking about patiently enduring during difficulties. And so he says, his second example now, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. The prophets had a lot of hard times. Uh, when you look at the life of Elijah and Elisha, when you see how Jeremiah was pursued and imprisoned and beaten, when you see Ezekiel, his wife died, there were different things Ezekiel went through as an example of the suffering that Israel was going to go through. You see Hosea, who was told to marry a prostitute, knowing that she was going to go back into prostitution. It's one thing to marry a woman that has been a prostitute. It's another thing to marry her, knowing that she's going to go back into prostitution and marrying her anyway. And God was giving an example of his faithfulness towards Israel, knowing that they were going to be unfaithful. These prophets suffered. They suffered in great ways. Some of them were killed. Isaiah was sawn in half. They were arrested. They were beaten. They had a lot. He says, so consider these guys who suffered. And then it says, indeed, verse 11, we count them blessed who endured. What, what does that mean? We count them blessed who endured. We look back on the prophets and we say, man, what a good group of guys. They were so blessed to be a prophet. We look back at Jeremiah and say, man, I wish I could have been Jeremiah. I wish I could have been Isaiah. I wish I could have been Ezekiel. These guys were blessed. As a consensus, when we think of the prophets, we don't think, what a bunch of poor guys. Those guys really suffered. We don't think that, do we? 
We think those guys were blessed even though they endured suffering, even though they faced difficulties. Why? Why is there a consensus in the church that the prophets were blessed? We count them as blessed because we know that real blessing isn't about the days that we live, but it's about the days that we are living for. We know that one day we will be in the presence of God. And we know that all of those prophets are in his presence and that they are far better off than the ones that didn't suffer, the ones that lived for themselves and lived for their own means and their own ends, the ones that got what they got. And it looked like here in this earth, they were receiving blessings, but in eternity they don't. So we count them blessed who endured. So his encouragement is, if we're counting prophets who had such struggles and difficulties as being blessed, if we see them and have a consensus that they were blessed, then how much more us? My brethren, take the prophets, verse 10 again, who spoke in the name of the Lord as examples of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the intended end of the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. You've heard of the perseverance of Job, he said. Well, of course they had. Job was one of the most common told stories of the Bible, of the Old Testament. It's the oldest story that we have of a man that lost everything, of a man who patiently endured. The perseverance of Job. When I read that God wants us to persevere as Job did, I feel a little bit better. Because when I think of perseverance, I think of persevering in a perfect kind of a way. But when I read the book of Job, I see that Job had his struggles. Job had his problems. At one point, Job says, I wish that God were a man because I would sit him down and I would say, what are you doing? You ever felt like that? You ever felt like, I don't know what God's doing in my life. And I wish he were a man that I could sit him down and say, what are you doing? That's how Job felt. That's the perseverance of Job. Job got into a complaining fit. Okay, so Job's got all this. He loses his family. He loses his, his wealth. He's sick, boils, pottery, right? And then his three friends decide to come around. And they're worse than all he suffered so far. Because these guys show up and they say to him, nobody suffers like this Job unless they're full of sin. You must be full of sin. Tell us, what's your sin? God doesn't do this unless there's sin in your life. And Job ends up defending himself. I don't have any sin. I tell you the truth. I didn't do anything. And I don't know why God's doing this, but woe is me. And he goes into a complaining fits. Now, Job also says some of the greatest things that anybody ever said. Though he kills me, I will serve him. Remember, Job's wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Job, things are so bad for you. Why don't you just get it done with? Just curse God and die. He said, I'll serve him no matter what. I'll live for him no matter what my life goes through. But why did God do it? What was the purpose of God? When, when you get to the end of the book of Job, you think you're going to find out. Finally, God comes on the scene. There's Job's friend speaking, Job speaking, Job's friend speaking, Job speaking. Then there's the young guy that comes in and speaks, and he makes more sense than any of them. Then Job, and then the friends, and then Job and the friends, and then the young guy. Finally, you come to the end. And when God comes on the scene, he says to Job, a series of questions. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, no. Were you there when I created this and I created that and I created this and I did this and I did that? Were you there? And he goes through, I think, 40 questions. And all the questions would be answered by Job, no. No, 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 no. In essence, God is saying, you think you know what I'm doing, but you were nowhere around. God's ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. If they weren't, we'd understand why we're suffering. 
thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.